In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before the children of Israel entered the promised land, Moses reminded them of the Ten Commandments and concluded with the following words. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Let us pray. These are your words, Holy Father. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and mercy to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. St. Paul writes in our epistle lesson this morning, You know what commandment we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The commandments that the Apostle gives are given through the Lord Jesus. We hear an echo from Moses who said what he commanded was for your good. From the Lord Jesus, for your good. Must these not be the same? Can the Lord Jesus command anything of you that is not for your good? You hear the law, and you may suppose a strictness that simply rains on your parade, but alas, you don't want to go to hell. Good. It's good that God stops sin in its tracks. You review the Ten Commandments, and suppose the law must simply be intended to expose sin in you that is common to all so that we might all repent of sins that no one can really actually avoid. Well, this is true enough, I suppose. But if you hear it from Jesus, dear brothers and sisters, take heed and believe that it is for your good. God's law isn't given to obstruct your life but to guide it. Nor does God aim simply to elicit a response of sorrow from you for things you can't help, but to instruct you in righteousness. The Ten Commandments are the eternal will of God. Jesus commands what he commands because he seeks your best interests, not only in eternity, but even now. His commandments are for your good. It doesn't always feel like it's for your good. Especially when, even now, feels like such a long time. It often feels like it's for your bad. To needlessly deny you satisfaction and pleasure, but your feelings often lie to you. Jesus doesn't. God's commandments are for your good. God seeks your better life. You make your life worse, not better, when you disobey him. God seeks your deepest satisfaction. You miss out when you seek it apart from his word. God loves you, and he loves your neighbor. When you defraud your neighbor, you hurt yourself, whether by gossiping, stealing, holding a grudge, or consensually agreeing to use one another. Even worse than defrauding your neighbor is defrauding your brother or sister. St. Paul, through the Lord Jesus, commands you not to do that. And why? Because God's will is your sanctification, 
your holiness, that you might not defy him and defraud yourself of his favor. God's will is for you to be holy as he is holy. As he is holy. So does God sit in heaven denying himself what he wants? Is that what his holiness is? Does he sit in heaven with unfulfilled desires, lamenting that his own standards of holiness prevent him from getting what he really desires? And then, to remain consistent, he imposes the same repressive standards on men and women on earth who have an even tougher time complying. Is this what holiness is? You may suspect this of your parents. It is slanderously said of St. Paul, but do you suspect this of God? Will you let this be said of your Savior? No. God's will is done. This means he gets what he wants. His will is good and gracious because his desires are pure. He gets what he wants by appearing to do the opposite of what anyone would want. So often must you. God sent from heaven what gave him the deepest and most eternal joy and pleasure. He sent to earth what made heaven heaven. As we sing, yea, heaven itself were void and bare, if thou, Lord, wert not near me. But the Father sent our Lord, his own Son, down to us to deny himself whatever it is that we foolishly opt for instead of holiness. And in complete holiness, he faced temptation and waited patiently for God's help. In complete holiness, he silenced the devil with his every lie using God's written word. In complete holiness, he pleased his Father in all things as true man under the same law that condemns us. He despised the shame, but he endured it for the joy that was promised him by his Father. Talk about delayed gratification, huh? He who alone is holy gave his life unto death to bear in his own holy body and soul all the wrath and punishment and pain and death with which God wanted to condemn all human sin. Yes, that's right, God wanted to. He hates sin. He wanted to punish it more earnestly than you have wanted anything. And God got what he wanted. He condemned sin in the flesh. He poured every drop of his wrath on every evil thought and desire and action that ever defiled a soul or broke a family or used and abused another. He punished it all in his own son who died for the sins of the world. God got what he most wanted, not by denying his holiness, but by sending the Holy One to suffer in our place and gain for himself what he wanted all the more, to have mercy on us, to rescue us and own us and live with us and us with him forever. And his own son is not ashamed to call us brothers. This is what God wants. From God's perspective, heaven itself were void and bare. You, who are now joined as one with his Son through faith, were not there. So he has written your names on the palm of his hands until we are. For now, this is his will, our sanctification, that we be set apart for eternal life here on earth, as surely as our names already are in heaven. Through our Lord Jesus, St. Paul commands us to abstain from sexual immorality. 
The word in Greek is porneia, from which we get the word fornication as well as the other obvious word that comes from porneia. It refers to all abuses of holy matrimony. God said that it wasn't good for man to be alone. That's why he made his wife. The loneliness that was not good was not the absence merely of someone to satisfy Adam's desires. No, it was the absence of one whom Adam could serve and please and love and with whom he could praise God. God loved man and provided for him. It was not good for man to have no one to love and provide for. He was created to be like God, particularly in this holy desire to please another. And this absence of his wife meant also the absence of their children. Any treatment of or participation in marital intimacy that reduces itself to pleasure that one can get from another is sinful. It hurts and cheats and uses others. It wars against the soul. The primary purpose of such intimacy is to serve, not to be served. Any treatment of or participation in marital intimacy that treats needy children as an unwanted byproduct of sexual gratification is perverted. We don't exist to serve ourselves. We exist to honor God and serve each other. That's why he made us. That's why he makes babies. Jesus gained his greatest desire not by becoming man to indulge himself in human pleasures. No, he became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh in order to deny himself and lay down his life for his bride and to serve her children. We are children of Christ and of his church through water and the word. Through water and the word. This does not refer to what God extracted or demanded from his bride in order to please himself. This is not how he sanctifies us. But this is what baptism becomes for those who treat it as a mere sign of our spiritual surrender. But no, this water and word refers to the service that Christ rendered his beloved bride, by which he cleansed and sanctified her in mercy, and by which he creates new, needy life within her. He lives to fill our need. Jesus got what he most wanted when he got us who need him. The means by which he loves his bride is the means by which he creates his Christian children. When I was in high school, I remember it was popular for some of the non-non girls to wear what they called purity rings or bracelets, which signified their commitment to reserve sexual intimacy for marriage. I always respected these girls for making an unpopular stand. And of course, I agreed with them on the Sixth Commandment. God grant that they kept their resolve. And perhaps there's some use to such outward demonstration of holiness. Though wearing modest clothing might be sufficient enough and more practically helpful in keeping one's virtue. But a better sign of your purity is not a ring that must be replaced with a wedding band or in a prairie dress or even a head covering that must be replaced with a gown and veil, although such symbolism is kind of neat. 
No, the better sign of purity is not your commitment to denying yourself or what you clothe yourself with, but God's commitment to you and what he clothes you with. It is your baptism by which he guards and keeps you in all your ways and cleanses and forgives you when you stray. Your baptism marks you as the possession of the Lord Jesus. He bought you. He wraps you in his own righteousness. He does so now. You do not belong to him because of your commitment, but because of his. Not because of your purity and holiness, but because of his. If a young lady falls into temptation, she is ashamed. Her ring becomes a symbol of her own weakness and defilement. She will be ashamed to see it on her finger. But your baptism, because it is no mere symbol of your commitment, but is in fact God's own gracious washing away of your sin in the blood of Christ, your baptism remains a sign that you belong to him who made you his He made you his by forgiving you your sin. He bore your shame and he takes it away. And he can keep you his and even retrieve you from the claws of this world and its wicked ways and from your own deceitful desires. He can do so by the same means to not to be sure by rebaptism, but by the one baptism that you acknowledge for the remission of sins. You acknowledge it because he acknowledges it. Acknowledge it. By calling you back to your baptism, Jesus calls you back to himself, to your holiness. You belong to him. He acknowledges you. And because you belong to him, because you live under him in his kingdom, you also serve him, even now, in everlasting holiness, innocence, and blessedness. You are his. If you have fallen into temptation, If you have defiled yourself and find that you have stained your conscience with regret, that persistent desire to sin makes any renewed resolve not to sin a depressingly insufficient power to cleanse you. Dear Christian, find strength where you find forgiveness. Find your purity where you find your holiness. Remember your calling, brethren. Flee to Jesus who commands you for your good and who receives you for his goodness sake. You don't find the true church by finding true Christians. You find true Christians by finding the true church. The church is not identified by finding what holiness does. The church is identified by finding what makes us holy. Jesus makes us holy. The Canaanite woman came to Jesus. She did not feel welcome at church. They asked her to be sent away. But she knew her need. And she knew Jesus' power and willingness to help her. So she persisted. You don't find a faithful marriage where husband and wife never sin against each other. You find a faithful marriage where each seeks to love and honor his spouse and where many, many sins that you can't see are forgiven. They persist in marriage not because they have some romance that you must also seek and find. 
They persist because they know God has made them one and has taught them to cover each other's faults the way God has covered theirs. But you don't see this. You just see a marriage, perhaps one holier than yours. But don't expect love to parade itself. Love covers and endures all things. You don't find a faithful heart where you manage to avoid and conquer every lust before it sprouts. Although this is God's will for you, and he alone can accomplish it. But know you find a faithful Christian heart where your own heart confesses its sins to him who is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confessing your sins means that you acknowledge that God was right and that it is for your good that you not do it again. His love alone can bear your weakness. His love alone can cover you. And what holiness will you find? What but the good conscience that boasts in Christ alone and thanks him for his mercy? This is the will of God, our sanctification. It is not your personal triumph. It is your constant dependence on Christ. It is your firm hold on his promises, whether you are dealing with the much celebrated these days sins of lust and fornication, or whether you are dealing with the no less powerful desire to get revenge on one who has wronged you, or whether you're dealing with the shame of having wasted your life, or lost contact with your children, or having ruined your health by foolish living. There are many sins that we commit and many sins that are committed against us that defile us and make us very unholy and that make us feel useless to God who must indeed be ashamed of us. Who knows how long this Canaanite woman wallowed in such shame and helpless misery. How deep was her unholiness. Her own daughter was owned by a demon. What a failure she was as a mother. She needed Jesus. We don't know how long Jacob had been engaged in his inward strife. I suppose it was since he was in his mother's womb and had been fighting with his twin. And talk about defrauding his brother. He tricked Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew and later on tricked his father into giving him the divine blessing instead of his brother. He fled from his brother who wanted to kill him. And who can blame him? He fled to the land that his father left. Land that Abraham swear not to bring Isaac back to. He left the promised land and into the world. And he learned what it felt to, to be on the receiving end of trickery. As he, a faithful monogamist, was forced into polygamy by his father-in-law. Everything was a trick. Everything was a lie. But he found no rest in his soul. He found only turmoil. He wrestled with his conscience, with his past with his uncertain future as he again sought to re-enter the land of promise by God's command. But his problem was deeper than anything he could wrestle against. For he was wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against the same spiritual darkness that later possessed this Canaanite woman's daughter. Against the same enemies that afflict your tempted heart. Before he entered the promised land, he sent his family on ahead and prayed. That night, God answered his prayer the way he will answer yours in the night of temptation and grief. He wrestled with him. He demonstrated 
in a beautiful fashion why he would one day become true man. He didn't wrestle with an idea or a memory. He wrestled with something tangible and real. He wrestled with something that could hurt him and injure him. He wrestled with a man. But he wrestled with God, who also gives us today something just as tangible and real. And why? To hurt us? No, to let us win. Jacob was so named because he would spend his life contending with flesh and blood. And so you will try as you pursue the holy life, and you will fail as you do so. Wrestle rather with God. Consider his word and his work. Make use of the Lord's Supper often, where God deals with you as true man to bless you with peace that only the God-man can give. Remember your baptism where God renamed you Israel, not one who strives with himself, but one who wrestles with the God-man and prevails. Hold on to his promises. Catch him in his words like the Canaanite woman. That's how he lets you win. Remember the God who reveals his own name by joining it to yours. So remember your name. Remember the God who has shown you his face in Jesus Christ, your Savior. You are a Christian. Walk away weak and limping, but not disheartened by your lifelong struggle. Even this will be for your good. For you depart in peace with a victory that enables you to face all your enemies and enter heaven in the purest holiness. For Jesus' sake, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.